Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, I want to say good morning, Mercy family. Man, there is just a lot going on in our world, even in our local community right now. I mean, and big things too, right? COVID-19 remains the greatest battle of our generation, and the movement for justice for our minority brothers and sisters is important and long overdue. And, and the, church, the, the church has this message that speaks hope into both of these things, right? It speaks the hope that says you do not have to fear death because there is a hope beyond the grave. It looks at justice and it says, yes, we have a, an understanding of justice that comes from all people being made in the image of God and are equal in his eyes. It gives, it gives sight to where we are to go. But listen, here's what I've noticed. I, it kind of seems like collectively we are taking in more media coverage than we ever have before. Each one of us. And look, it's good, it's good for Christians to pay attention to our culture, right? A good missionary works hard to truly understand the people that they're living among. But if you aren't at the same time dropping an anchor deep into God and his word, the waves of culture will throw you all over the place. You will be quicker to speak when you should be listening and you'll be quicker to judge when you should love. So I want to ask you, Mercy family, to hunger right now more for Jesus than you do for the news. Anchor yourself into him in the mornings. And if you're not meeting with him in the mornings, I think now is the season to start that. Your soul needs a God who is sovereign over this cultural moment and who will strengthen you with grace and courage for you to walk through it. And I want to say, uh, especially to you fathers, let me single you out on this day. Today, Father's Day isn't about gifts that your family gives to you, okay? It's about acknowledging your God-given calling to lead your family. For the sake of your spouse, your kids, sink the anchor of your home deep into God and His Word. So what are we going to do today? We are going to open God's Word today and seek to hear from him. We're going to once again anchor our souls in him. So let me pray for us and then we'll get into it. God, our Father, I ask you simply speak to us through your word this morning. Speak to us, Father. We're listening. Thank you for Christ that's given us access to you. Speak to us. We're listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Colossians 3.20 says this. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? That's our question today. 
If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to this world? This is the Apostle Paul's question to the Colossian church. And as we go through it today, I want you to think honestly about your answer. The theme of our series in this book of Colossians, if you're joining up with us, we've been walking through Colossians, and the theme of the whole series is simply moving forward. But a lot of Christians feel like their spiritual life is less one of progress and more something like a seesaw, right? You know what I'm talking about, where you're good with Jesus for a while, but then you slip back into some old habits, but then you come back to him, you repent, you're good, and then you're back down again. And after a few years, you're basically back where you started. You just got some bumps and bruises from the ride. Y'all, our culture is crying out right now for something to hope in. It's always crying out, but the cry is a lot louder right now for a hope that can actually move us forward. A hope that there's a different day possible, maybe a different day coming. And we have that hope. We have it in the gospel, but so often that hope doesn't seem to translate into real change in our lives. Why would people outside the church put their hope in a gospel that doesn't seem to have power to change us? Why would they want to get on that seesaw? So y'all, to move forward, we're going to have to reckon with what Paul calls in that verse, the elements of this world. And when I say elements, listen, I don't want you to think of like some weird crystals from the cones of Dunshire or something like that, okay? <laughs> Instead, I think almost more like, the, like a spiritual periodic table, all right? Like the elements that are building the foundational blocks of a world that has rejected God. Okay, these are things like vanity, lust, greed, pride, wrath, sloth. The reason many Christians don't move forward is because the elements of this world have roots that reach far deeper into our hearts than we were ever aware of. And today we're only going to deal with one of those elements, but I believe we have to do the work that allows Christ to master them all. And too often we don't see how deeply they're rooted into our own hearts. So here's what happens. We become Christians and we bring these elements with us into our relationship with God, and into our church. And without fully realizing it, we practice a form of Christianity where we raise our hands to Jesus, but our feet are still rooted in the elements of this world. And so the element we're going to talk about today is religious pride. And by that I mean, if you spend more time crafting and protecting your Christian image than you do meeting with God and obeying him so that you can get more of him. Basically, if you care more about your image as a Christian than you do your relationship with Christ, it's religious pride. Now, here's how it happens. Here's the process of how this element finds its way into our Christian life. Before you were a Christian, you had to find ways to justify your personal worth, right? You had to find ways to validate yourself. Maybe you're You're watching this, you're not a Christian, and you're going through this process constantly trying to figure out how to validate yourself. And the only way to do that is to compare yourself to others, right? Either others in your life or the others that are maybe in culture that you want to be like. And our culture only facilitates this because we have rating systems now for everything, right? Restaurants, podcasts. You can rate your dentist on Google, you know? 
Like great dentist, four stars. Would have been five, but there was no prize box after it was done, right? I mean, everything. We compare everything. We compare our bodies. We compare our shopping carts, our cars, our shoes, our families. And it's exhausting to constantly try and measure up. It seems like sometimes, sometimes it seems like more than we even want to be liked by a friend, we just want to get likes from strangers so that we can feel that dopamine hit that makes us feel worthy for just a minute. And if you actually do get to a point of status where you feel like you're enough above the rest, man, it's exhausting to maintain that. The life of self-justification is exhausting. Sometimes it crumbles because life is too heavy for you to carry. You just didn't realize it. This self-justification, and you're going to hear me use the word pride and self-justification almost interchangeably today. It's a foundational element of the world we live in. And then, though, you're dealing in that space, and then you find Jesus. You hear the gospel, and it's this fresh oasis in the desert of self-justification. You don't have to prove anything, you hear Jesus tell you. Jesus says, yes, you're sinful. Yes, you're messed up. You've been trying to earn love and acceptance. But listen, you cannot earn love and acceptance from the one source you need it from, and that's God. God says you're worthy not because of how you measure up, but because Jesus died for your sins and cleansed your record. God says you're worthy because Jesus made you worthy. And and what happens in that moment, man, you see self-justification gets shattered, right? Element destroyed, right? Then here's what happens. We underestimate just how deep that need for self-justification was rooted down in our souls And so over time, we embed ourselves into Christianity and into the church, and we begin to compare our spirituality to other Christians. Before Jesus, we would compare our social lives to others. Now we compare our prayer lives to others. Before Jesus, we prided ourselves on knowing all the lyrics to the latest Lil Wayne song. Now it's knowing the latest lyric to the latest... Hillsong song or Mercy Church song. Before Jesus used to compare how attractive your clothing made you, but now it's how modest slash stylist your clothing makes you, right? We compare Bible knowledge, clothing choices, parenting skills. We're still comparing. And what we don't realize is that that same element, self-justification, never really left. It just found a choir robe. Our passage today is Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And my hope today is that you will hear Paul's message as a prophetic rebuke, putting light on this element that has tried to remain hidden and unnamed in your heart. But I also want you to hear it as a pastoral invitation, showing you a better, freer way forward. And in case you're wondering what the stakes of this passage and this message are, Nothing, nothing will cool off a Christian's love for the lost like religious pride. And nothing will kill a church like religious pride. It is Satan's primary weapon against the church, I promise you. So let's dig into this passage, see how Paul talks about religious pride, and then what we're supposed to do about it. Verse 16, 
Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Paul says, first word, therefore. That's our Bible reading clue to look back. If you're newer to the Bible, anytime you see the word therefore, go look and see what it's you know, there for, right? Because you never read a passage of scripture in isolation. Good Bible reading means understanding the context of your current passage in light of what comes before and after. Therefore, as him referring to what he's saying, the few verses before this that Pastor Rashard preached on last week, and he says, it's him saying, because Jesus made you alive when you were dead in your sins, because Jesus forgave all your sins, because Jesus took the bill that listed everything your sin owed, and he nailed it to the cross, because Jesus disarmed the enemy and triumphed over him. Therefore, Because of all that, and I can't stress enough, church, that the evidence you're reading the Bible correctly is that you see that motivation for your behavior flows from who Jesus is and what he's done. Not to earn acceptance, but because you have been accepted by Christ and what he has done, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. See, the necessary companion to pride is judgment. This is true in all of life because it's a foundational element of the world. So here it is creeping into the church, and what's happening is some in the church are judging the sincerity of one's faith based on their diet, based on whether or not they observe the right festivals, or even in the manner in which they observe a Sabbath day, the day of rest. You can imagine them saying, we're all Christians, but if you want to be a really good Christian, don't eat that meat sacrificed to idols. You better make sure you're in attendance for all of our events. You're going to be really strict about the Sabbath day. Now, what's wrong with this? Listen, it's not that these things are bad. It's not the Sabbath, especially the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a wonderful gift from God woven into the fabric of the created order. You will certainly be better off for observing the Sabbath. It's not that the practices are bad. It's that judging one another by them will draw us away from their very purpose. They're supposed to point us to Jesus. That's verse 17. These, these practices are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. So you take the Sabbath. Jesus says man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the man. And the author of Hebrews is going to tell us that the whole purpose of the Sabbath day was to point us to the Sabbath God who would bring eternal Sabbath rest to us in the form of Jesus. We find ultimate rest, not in a day, but in a person. The day is a shadow of the person, so we're not to be judged by our adherence to the Sabbath day because God says that day is a shadow. Shadows, think about just real quick, shadows aren't tangible. They are images without substance. The substance, in this case, is Jesus. So we're to spend our energy following, clinging, holding on to the substance, which is Christ. So he says, verse 18, let no one condemn you. He's going to reinforce. You're seeing reinforce three times. That's how big of a deal religious pride is and how important it is to root it out. He just keeps Going after it, verse 18, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual minds. Get this for a second, church. What would seem spiritual, 
ascetic practices, which means practices that are supposed to humble you, things like fasting or, or times of silence, when they become a means of comparison, they're empty. This, this, this thing where he mentions the worship of angels, this is him reinforcing a theme throughout Colossians that Christ and Christ alone is worthy of our worship. And anyone trying to draw your attention away from Jesus is not, he says, it's not spiritual. They are unspiritual. They are inflated, which means they walk around like they know what they're talking about, but they're inflated by emptiness. That's religious pride. That's an element of this world wrapped up in the choir robe. You know, this is how, um, this is how cults prey on people. They tell you that you need more than Jesus. Right? And, and the, whoever the leader is has the access to the visionary realm that Paul talks about. If you'll just follow them but it's empty, it's pride, and Paul knows religious pride is a very real threat to Christians. Otherwise, he wouldn't be spending his time talking about it. And I know you might think, well, yeah, I'd never be susceptible to a cult. Listen, are you processing all the thousands of things you receive through the lens of Christ? Are they pointing you to Christ? That's why Paul says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And he further identifies the problem with these, with these folks that would push forward this idea of looking at something other than Jesus. Verse 19, he, whoever this person might be that would, would claim access to a visionary realm, doesn't hold on to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. This is like Paul going into one of his bread and butter favorite word pictures. Someone who is not pointing you to Jesus is forgetting that Jesus is, and here he goes into his favorite word picture, the head of the body, that is the church. Paul referencing the church as the body, that's like me referencing UNC as the greatest school of all time. It's like Pastor Rashard talking about Texas. Like it's, it's, it's the go-to, you know what I mean? The body is one of his go-to ways to explain how critical Jesus is to us. He's the source of nourishment. He's the one that holds us together. He's the one that's our means of growing. In fact, Jesus uses a different metaphor over in John 15. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and then you'll bear much fruit. Again, what he's not saying, he's not saying that these religious practices are wrong. I mean, think about it. You look through scripture, what, you, what you're gonna see is God calls us to fast and pray. He calls us to give our money to the church so ministry can go forward. He calls us to serve one another, to carry one another's burdens. He calls us to seek justice for the oppressed. He calls us to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the beginning and the end of these practices must be Jesus. If Jesus is not the beginning and the end of your Christian faith, and here's what I mean by that. When I say beginning, I mean that his work on the cross and him coming out of the grave, that is the motivation for your obedience. And the end, I mean that his presence in your life and his name exalted through your life is your aim and what you're hoping for. If he's not the beginning and the end, you will not move forward in the Christian faith. You will never root out the elements of the world that are down in your heart and you will just feel like you are on the seesaw going up and down again. So he asks you, and I ask you again today, Colossians 2.20, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? A butterfly would never crawl like a caterpillar along the ground. It has wings now. It would be absurd to go back to caterpillar activity. Paul is using logic 
to point out that it can't be rational thinking that is leading people back into self-justification just through religion this time. Because you're dead to that. So he keeps going, keeps pressing in. I want to read you our last three verses today. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although, listen, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgement. I hope you see what he says in 23. These religious standards that you think you have to measure up to, they have the reputation of wisdom. They sound good and they seem good, but they are not of any value. Get this in curbing (laughs) self-indulgence. If Jesus is not the beginning and the end of these practices, even the strictest observance of these practices is not going to deal with the elements of the world rooted way down deep in your soul. It's just going to make you appear like you got your life together for a little while until those elements break through and that seesaw comes crashing back down. So what do we do now? How do we break free from religious pride? Should we just say, well, I guess we'll just do whatever we want. That way we can't judge each other by by how we do it. No, we know it's not right. We're servants of Christ called to obey him with our whole lives. So How do we move forward? We need to lose our religious pride while still remaining obedient to Christ in order to move forward with him. Let me offer you a way forward. I'm going to show you a couple of things I think we need to go through to lose our religion. And yes, that REM song is just running in my head, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, First, you got to confess your religious pride to God. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that if anyone had reason to be proud based on their religious works, it was him. Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, nobody had zeal like him. He even persecuted the church and killed Christians as a form of religious piety. He was willing to go as far as he could go. And yet he says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Any form of religion that doesn't start with Christ's work on the cross and doesn't have its aim and its finish in knowing and exalting Christ is garbage. It's worthless. It's dung. It's actually destructive. Religious pride is the enemy of the gospel. You've got to see your pride so that you can confess it. So let me help you see it. Here's a couple of signs of religious pride. If I'm telling you to confess your pride, I at least got to help you see it. And this is for me as well. Okay. In fact, I'll show you real quick how this is for me too. First sign or a sign of religious pride is if you need people to praise your religious performance. Listen, gospel encouragement is good for the church family. What I'm talking about though is 
you perform, you carry out your religious duties and works, not to know God, but so that you can get the affirmation of others around you. And the way you know it is when people don't recognize your performance, you get bitter. I'm not saying fellow Christians shouldn't be thankful to you. I'm saying you shouldn't need it to feel justified. On the other side, if you feel shame because you don't measure up to the religious performance of others, that's actually religious pride as well because it's basing your worthiness on your performance instead of on Christ's performance. I'm just going to go ahead and say, pastors struggle with this one maybe more than anybody, especially with the rise of digital media so that I can easily compare myself to other pastors. And are you kidding me now with this whole COVID thing? Every church in the world has a worship service that is a click away. And we've got these little satanic view counts right up in the corner that you're seeing right now, probably. Basically telling us second to second how we're performing. Y'all, I could just ride the pride, shame, seesaw all morning long. I'm telling you, if you feel that that way anywhere, most of us do, you've got to confess it. Because religious pride is an enemy of the gospel. But there's freedom in confession. Here's another sign. When your God-given passion becomes your religious pride. One of the most beautiful things in the body of Christ is how God gives each of us different giftings and different experiences that usually work together to form causes and areas of ministry that we're passionate about. Right? Like I'm personally passionate about college ministry because the Lord did a great work in my life during my college years. I'm passionate about men's ministry because over my early adult years, the Lord used some men to do a great work in my life. And of course, I'm a man. That would make sense. But some of you, listen, God has placed a passion for for women, for the unborn, for the oppressed, for students, for music, for hospitality, for refugees, for overseas missions. And praise God, we don't all have the same passion. Do you know how much we would miss out on if we all had the same passion? That would not be unity. That would be uniformity. I'm grateful that as mercy grows, we're trying to do the hard work of growing more diverse in every way because we get to know more of God that way. But when your passion becomes a source of pride that you judge other Christians and even your church on, it becomes an enemy of the gospel. When you think, well, if they were really Christians, they would be as passionate as I am about this. Really? Really, do you care as much about kids' ministry as you do about that thing? Because I could convince you our greatest calling is to our children. My point with that is, if your passion has become the measuring stick you use to judge others, instead of a way for you to gain more of Jesus and make more of him known, it's become a source of religious pride. you got to confess it, because pride is an enemy of the gospel but there's freedom in confession. I'll give you one more sign. If your public image is more important than your personal holiness, if you're more concerned with how other Christians see you than how God sees you, you're still living according to the elements of this world. And this one may be the greatest enemy of all in the Southern American church. Maybe you've been in church a long time. You've gotten a little too good at putting on the church face. Maybe you could pass any membership test we could throw at you. You could crush the Bible trivia quiz. 
right? We don't actually have one of those, but I'm saying, you, if we had it, you could kill it, right? You know how to say all the right things, and you might even be able to become a leader in the church because you're so good at religious performance. But if your public image is not an overflow of your personal closeness to God, you are living according to the elements of this world. And Christ talks about this in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So to put it bluntly, again, if you spend more time crafting and honing and protecting your Christian image than you do meeting with God and obeying him so that you can get more of him and so that you can make him known among the people in your life, that's religious pride. And you got to confess it. Because religious pride is an enemy of the gospel. But there's freedom in confession. That's the great hope here. All of us deal with this. This is not judgment from someone that's got it right. In fact, I'm going to talk about this. Here's a couple of tangible action steps. You see these signs? Let's talk about some action steps. After confessing it to God, you got to move forward. Assess where religious pride is motivating your actions. That's between you and the Lord as you confess. But then listen, the next thing to do, confess to a brother or sister in Christ. I don't want to skip this one here. Because as you work through this exercise, this is going to be your, um, your soul work for the week. All right, remember I told you uh, early on in this series, if you were with us, that uh, we'd have homework each week, but I don't want to call it homework because all work is from home right now. So we'll call this soul work. And your soul work is simply this. Uh, I want you to assess and confess, all right? Assess where pride has taken out residence inside of your faith and your heart, and then confess it. Confess it to God and confess it to a brother or sister and just ask them to pray for you, to ask you about it in a week, to follow up. Let's fight this thing together. There's something very powerful about pulling the monster out from under the bed and naming it. It loses its power. That's what confession is. Let's stop there, though. Let's talk about where we go from there. I want to share with you the verse that we're actually going to open next week with. Remember, this is all one letter right? They we're talking about context just a minute ago. So we read today's section in light of what comes before and after. Here's Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ. A couple of verses ago, he said, if you died with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you have died with Christ, verse 20 speaks to the power of the cross, which wiped your record clean. Now he speaks to the power of the resurrection. We share in his resurrection. The whole message of the gospel is that you have new life. You died like Christ died, but then he made you a new creation. He brought you, as the psalmist says, up from the pit. He turned your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He breathed life into the valley of dry bones. The power of the resurrection is that you are free from the elements of this world. These elements, they are powerful, but they are inferior, cheap, 
imposters compared to the power and glory of God. So moving forward, set your mind on Christ. Put on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, made available to you in Christ. You know, I think about, I've been reflecting some over the course of this season. Maybe the most important sermon series I've ever preached here was actually the series I didn't really think would be that, but it's kind of become earlier this year called Pray 20. Because if you will set your mind on God, if you will commune with him for 20 minutes every day, the elements of this world will start to seem far less attractive to you. I'm not saying it won't be a battle. I'm just saying maybe finally you'll see Christ for who he really is and you'll let him do the fighting for you. Look to Christ. Abide in Christ. The best thing for you right now is to become desperately needy before God. Cling to him. Run to him. Refuse to leave the throne of grace. Listen, for those of you tuning in who are not Christians, I want you to see this, this is who we are. We're not religious elites. In fact, we are easily deceived beggars with nothing to bring, but we've been invited by God to a banquet. And the invitation is open to all, to all who will receive it. If you hear this today and you hear, man, I, I've fallen short in some places I can see where I've been letting pride win, and you start to feel that shame come on you, listen, that is the enemy just flipping religious pride to the other side of the coin. All right, I want you to, to just push against that. I want you to acknowledge that for what it is, and I want you to hear just like the father said to the prodigal, welcome home, son, welcome home, daughter. He does not judge you. He calls you home away from your sin, invites you into relationship with him, and he judges your sin by Christ's death on the cross. And he says, your debt has been paid. Welcome home. You receive his love today. Confess your sin. The the way to receive his love is the hard, courageous work of confessing the sin. Confess it. Confess that pride to him. And then receive the love of the Father, the embrace of the Father who makes himself available to you in Christ. Let me pray for you. God, I recognize how feeble my words are to try and shed light on the great deceiver and to try to... (laughs) In any way, show the full picture of your glory, your goodness, the freedom that comes. So God, I pray that your spirit now would do the work that it does. Would you set captives free? God, I pray that confession begins to happen. In fact, right there where you are, if you want to go ahead right now, say, God, I know it. I know I've been measuring myself on my performance, not on Christ's performance. I've been measuring my worth by how I compare to others around me, not by what you say about me. God, I confess that, and today I believe that what Christ did was enough for me. I believe that when you say that I am a son, I am a daughter, because I believe that Christ died for me, I receive that today.
And I'm going to walk, not in my own strength, but God, I want to walk in your strength. I believe that you are present with me. I believe that you'll carry me. God, this is our prayer. Would you make Mercy Church a people who walk in the freedom of the gospel that frees us from religious pride, from the tyranny of self-justification. I pray you lift burdens in response to, to this passage and this message. We love you. We praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.